welcome to another edition of Films on File. I'm Gav. I'm Alex. I'm Joel. I'm Dave. And we are four lads from Liverpool who like to sit around and bitch about films. You could say we're like the quarrel. Oh, the quarrel. Oh, the quarrel. Yeah. yeah, you think that was good? all right, yeah. Yeah, because that's the last one. I've literally what else. I'm having a very, very hard time. So, anybody who's listening, if you can think of any Liverpool-related bands that have put a film review spin on, please hit us up on Twitter. Anyway, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, we recreate a courtroom scenario and put films on trial. We also have a lot of trivia, news, banter, and quizzes. Isn't that right, Dave? Uh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about those. <laughs> uh, this week's film, however, is Spider-Man 3. Is it great or is it not? I probably should have thought of like a good and a bad phrase before. <laughs> you know, we'll just do that. But before we get onto the bulk of the show, let us first discuss this week's news. Oh, nice. hey. Every single time the same uh, one now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, I've just nicked the music from News at 10. <laughs> so, if anybody's listening from ITV, please don't sue. <laughs> so, this part is where we just go around in a circle and talk about newsworthy topics of the week. Can I please start with Dave? Uh, I'm actually going to get started on quite a somber tone, to be honest with you. Um, okay, moving on. <laughs> um, Sad news that George A. Romero, director of uh, Night of the Living Dead and other such zombie films, has probably died. He might come back, <laughs> but he's probably gone with regret. So uh, yeah, a bit of a bit of a sad note there for horror movie fans and film fans in general. I think it'd be a great uh, you know bit of promotion if he actually wasn't dead. He was he was advertising his next film. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be very dark, wouldn't it? Anyone, 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 no one forgive him for that. <laughs> Yeah, to, uh, to be honest, what are you going to do for uh, expanding your DVD collection now, Joel? Because pretty much all of your DVDs have been directed or written by George A. Romero. And they have the three words of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never been a big like zombie of the dead fan. So what was George, George Romero's zombie fan? What, what, what was George Romero's... Like, was he... So he pretty much the modern day zombie that you know and love in films was created from him. It's essentially it's the zombie apocalypse drama. It's like zombies were around in films beforehand. I think I think it was Bela Lugosi was in a film called White Zombie. Zombies were around, but they weren't like your main enemies. They weren't your main bad guys. He created the zombie apocalypse genre that we know, and that so many people have paid tribute to or lovingly ripped off. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love George Romero's films, especially the first three of the Dead films. Um, we were talking about it the other day, you know, the best special effects that have been in George A. Romero films, and I was talking about the um, the scene in Day of the Dead, which is the third one from the trilogy, and it's the the captain. What was his name again? And basically, the main body from the film gets his comeuppance. Good. His opens gets come big when a bunch of zombies basically bombard him and they rip him in half. So the, the special effects is done where the actor is pretty much in, in the floor and they have these fake legs that get pulled off him and then all these blood and guts and everything starts spilling out. But the story or the bit of trivia behind that is that they actually, uh, the fridges that contained all the animal guts and all the meat were broken so the all the all this all these guts and blood and everything were kept in fridges in you know 50 degree heat over three days and they were completely rancid so when it came to actually tearing the guy open 
there were so many people that were violently ill that day because of this rancid meat and that they had to put the extras I mean fair play to them they had to pretend to be gnawing it and, and eating most oh, of seriously it. yeah 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 Oh, yeah, for the close-ups, they used like I think rubber or something like that. Right. Living covered in blood, but yeah, they still had to when they were tearing him open. Pick it up, bring it close to their mouths, if not put it in. But it's like yeah. a commitment there for extras. Yeah, yeah. So uh, rest in peace, George Romero. We may see you again one day. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, Joel, what is your piece of news this week? My piece of news is from the Disney Expo D twenty three, where. In a little private room, they teased a Infinity War trailer, which has actually since been leaked online. There's kind of sketchy footage, kind of camcorder style of the trailer. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, then you can just Google it and it tells you basically what happens in it. But I think it's fair to say I've got a marvellous erection for this. <laughs> oh, wow. That was gold. Wow. Well, uh, I've been thinking about putting some t-shirts, but I was just looking for the right slogan. <laughs> did, it, did, did you not find the trailer? Did it not give too much away? Like, uh, No, it doesn't really give anything away. I mean, there's bits and bobs in there. Like, the people who saw Spider-Man Homecoming said where is Peter Parker's Spider-Sense? And in this trailer, there's like a little clip where um, he's on the school bus and his uh, his arm hair stands stands up and then he looks behind and there's like a big spaceship, you know, invading Earth or whatever. So there's just yeah. like... It's not a spidey sense, yeah. it just looks behind him. <laughs> but there's just like... That's, lo- more like a, that's more like a breeze on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> there's just like, you know, loads of little cool uh, bits and bobs in there like that. And I think it's just setting it up to be probably I would say like the most exciting film that, that I'm looking forward to right. over the next few years but you're not confident that probably the most exciting <laughs> film that you're looking forward to well definitely then okay <laughs> has it got a release date 2018 and 2019 isn't it part yeah. one part two <laughs> two parter yeah I can see a lot of big paychecks getting axed in those two films mm. yeah well they need to I, I hope they don't cop out I hope they do at least kill one or they, two they, characters. They, they must. We, we've been talking about this in a previous episode. The fact that when you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you take into account all the side characters and superfluous characters in the films, you must have at least 40, 50 strong characters there. Maybe all of them are going to appear, maybe maybe not, but, but the main characters, you've at least got 15 okay. to 20. So if you could pick one character to call, who would you call from the Marvel universe? Well, there's some really interesting stuff, actually. You know, I'm, I'm not sure of the actor's name, but he, play, he plays Bucky, the, the Winter Soldier. The Sebastian guy. Stan. Yeah, he's, he's got an eight-contract film, and he's only fulfilled three of them. <laughs> yeah. And in the comics, he actually goes on to play uh, Captain America. Yeah. So it's possible, you know, Captain America... Snuffs it or Thor, I reckon, is a good show. To be honest, I'm thinking Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man, they have done quite a lot in their standalone films mm. and in the Avengers films. Is there much more for them to do? Tony Stark, I think, is definitely come to come to his end. I don't think there's anywhere for his character. He's sort of retired, he's not retired, he's back in, he's out, he's you know, he's I don't I think I think he might be done. Mm. Do you I think there's anywhere for his character to go? I don't know, but I think there's somewhere for his bank account to go. <laughs> what is it, like 40 million? Is that... Oh, no, no, you have, because it's much, much more than that. What? Yeah, it's, it's almost like, I'm pretty sure it's like 50 to 70 million. You're joking. That he got for Iron Man 3. I'm not quite sure what he got for Avengers 2 or Spider-Man Homecoming. Probably a bit less, but then again, probably not that much less. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, we're all excited anyway. 
So uh, I'm going to move on to my bit of news the week just because it links in quite well with that. And it has once again come from the San Diego Comic Con. And it is the news that they're having to do some extensive and expensive reshoots on the Justice League film. Uh, now, another trailer, or the second trailer for the film was released to coincide with it, and it does look a hell of a lot better than the last one, which, as I've said before, was almost like Batman going around to recruit the band. Hey, hey guys, can you play a musical instrument? you want to be in my band? <laughs> it, you know, it, it didn't scream big action blockbuster to me. This one does. Zack Snyder has had to bow out of the franchise uh, for personal reasons, which is really upsetting, but they have brought in Josh Whedon to do the reshoots and to be some sort of like creative figure within the DC Cinematic Universe. So that could be really exciting going forward. The thing that I want to cover about the news is that Henry Cavall, who plays Superman, is in the middle of shooting Mission Impossible 6 and he's grown a pretty hefty moustache, which looks very nice, I might say. <laughs> I've got moustache envy. <laughs> But he's had to go back and reshoot some of his scenes from Justice League. Spoiler alert, Superman doesn't stay dead for long. Well, unless it's like a flashback or unless it's like a dream. No, they're, not gonna, they're not going to not have Superman in the franchise, yeah. are they? But the thing is, is that he's got this hefty moustache now and he can't shave it off because he's contractually obliged to have this moustache now that he started filming Mission Impossible 6. So what they're doing is they're filming him and then digitally removing his moustache in <laughs> post-production. So... Superman's moustache or the removal of it is probably going to be one of the most expensive parts of the film whoever's got that job probably didn't get into the career to you know <laughs> digitally remove moustache wow you were going to get him on that yeah yeah removed Kenny Cavall's moustache aren't you a bit worried about the whole thing that they're doing expen- I mean can you think of another DC film where they did lots of expensive reshoots how that turned out why are they doing expensive reshoots it, it just it screams the first film wasn't good enough to yeah. me mm-hmm. so and you know then you get different directors I know it's obviously a, a good reason why Zack Schneider had to bow out but still you get different directors at the helm and I don't know it, it could turn into a bit of a mishmash of not really uh on the subject of the film, but I was watching. Obviously, the, all the actors go to Comic Con and they have um, like a Q and A with the with the crowd or the fans or whatever. And the guy who plays the Flash again, I'm not sure of his name, but he just seems like the most annoying person in the world. Like every like the guys are asking like Ben Affleck a question, and then he just comes in, you know, just just completely speaks over him with like some gag that isn't funny, and Ben Affleck just looks at him like. And then he just kind of carries on speaking, and he does it to everyone. He does it to like Gal Gal got, um, you know, uh, whoever the other dudes are, the, the guy who plays Cyborg or whatever his name is, and he just seems like such an annoying tool bag. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you know it's quite endearing in a way because he looks like a big fanboy, and this looks like his dream role. And I think he was just really excited to be at San Diego Comic Con, you know, on the other side of the table. Exactly, yeah. So I think that's what that was. I did see some of the footage and it was a bit annoying. It's like, oh, it's sure. cringy. Yeah. No, no, no not, not as bad as Joel's making out. It wasn't like he was... Uh, I wanted uh, to slap him and I wasn't there. But it, it wasn't like he was, he was, he was you know, doing a tap dance routine and doing jazz hands to everybody's interview. Like, but it, yeah. It wasn't great. So, moving on, anyway, Alex, what is your piece of news for the week? Uh, well, mine just links in, it's not a big piece of news, but it links in quite well with overblown, bloated franchises. <laughs> going, uh, John Wick Chapter 2, um, they've just sort of announced that they're now going to do a whole big cinematic universe 
based around uh, an expanded universe based around John Wick, which I thought you know, we've, I think we've discussed John Wick before on the podcast, but it's just a bit. I just don't think there's enough there, and I, you know, I'm not. That's no criticism against John Wick, but you know, you know, in John Wick Two, where the other assassins come into play, it's like one of the best bits of that film. You know, in like the different ballerina, there was like a violin player, all that. Mm. Apparently, they're going to be getting like their own spin-off films, and and that that's the idea that they're going to they're really going to hammer. To be honest, two to make a franchise. I, I think it'd be fairly easy. I mean, the amount of scripts they're just floating around. They have that like blacklist, don't they, or black book of yeah. of, of the, the best scripts that haven't Never been made. produced. So you just flick through one of them, a film about an assassin. Here we go. This one can be one of the John Wick guys. Can't it just make that film though? Do you know what I mean? Just leave John Wick as a good one. The thing is, is that it, make... these studios are in constant combat against each other. If you're trying to compete with Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC one or a big franchise like I don't know, like Star Wars or Fast and the Furious, Transformers, anything like that, if you are releasing your film at the same time as they're releasing their film, it's going to get squashed. Yeah, but a franchise starts from a good first film, doesn't it? So yeah. if they make more good first films, you know, then they might be able to make... I don't know, good films make money, so I don't know, I think it's a bit lazy. Yeah. But on, when I was re- researching this, uh, reading the article, they, I also found out about different studios having their um, franchises... Apparently Paramount has set up a writer's room to get ideas just for the Transformers universe, and the plan is to make 12 more Transformers films. I mean, they're already like a bit of a running joke. Awful, yeah. I don't even think they got away with making one. I remember your face when you came out of Transformers 1, you were so sad. When you, like what they did to no, us. No, tell us That was a personal moment. <laughs> I, that, was, that was the beginning of what I seem to remember. A pretty bad binge that we went on after that I think we films no 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 as in you and I went and got severely drunk <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah we ended up uh, like about 8 o'clock in the morning in the park somewhere just because of Transformers it did back yeah. that, you know that could have started the whole spiral <laughs> for us there but thank you very much Michael Bay <laughs> but anyway um, yeah I mean it's, it, what, what are your thoughts about John Wick getting an expanded universe Joel you seem um, well I don't think it needs it does it I think it's one of them where if a film does well then they just roll with it and roll yeah. with it and like flog a dead horse kind of thing they, they do it till it till it's dead but that said I think it's really hard these days like if you look at some of the, the blockbusters that have come out if you kind of research reasons why that they flopped most people or high up on the lists would be reasons like they competed with this film like you said there'll be like a new Marvel film out or the new Star Wars film will be out there's always like a new film and a franchise coming out pretty much yeah. the entire way through the through the year and wh- why like a lot of these other films flop is just the, the competition like Fast and Furious whatever there always seems to be something is that they're mega budget films as well what I think they should do obviously with my experience in Hollywood and <laughs> <laughs> please tell us <laughs> is make lots of smaller budget good films you know it doesn't I don't I, I, a good film doesn't need a big budget necessarily. In fact, a big budget does not make a good film. Yeah, but the thing is, yeah, that's 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 true, entirely true. But they are just thinking of the one outcome, which is how much money can they make? Money. And yeah. are we going to spend fifty million on a smaller film and maybe get fifty five million back, or are we going to spend one hundred and fifty million on a bigger film and hopefully get three hundred million back? Anyway, moving on. 
I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's never happened to me before. Well, that is the end of the news. It doesn't happen on ITV news, though. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you just had an idea, Gav. Yes, I've seen that blooper of Trevor McDonald's. Anyway, right, so moving swiftly on to our trailer of the week. And there's been a few, to be honest, but I think we're going to go with the one that we wanted to talk about the most, which was the Disaster Artist. That right? Yes, yes. Right, I've got it right this time. The Disaster Artist, which is a kind of biopic of uh, The Room and Tommy Wiseau. Uh, it's also a bit of a comedic take on it as well. I mean, what did you guys think of the trailer? Dave? Uh, I really liked it, to be honest with you. The trailer's quite short. It's just them filming one scene and having to do multiple takes of the same thing. Because Tommy Wiseau, who James Franco is playing, just doesn't get it. And it, I'm sure it didn't quite pan out that way. It's obviously they've dra- dramatised it and made it funnier. But it's, I'm pleased by how it looks, to be honest. I think James Franco's doing a good Tommy Wiseau impression. It looks like it could be very funny. Your opinion carries weight here as well, doesn't it? Because you've actually met Tommy Wiseau. In passing, yes, I have met Tommy Wiseau in passing uh, at a Q and A for for the room. Funnily how, enough, how did he come across? Uh, to be honest, it's quite pleasant. I know I've seen the YouTube footage of him losing his, his rag on set and like storming off and having and shouting at people. But it, it, to people that have paid to see his film, uh, he's very pleasant. Yeah. yeah, he was quite a nice guy. And as my girlfriend will tell you, he had very soft hands. Oh, yeah, Aww. very soft like hands. Yeah, he's, yeah. It's slightly strange, man. Though I was just about to say, Gav, it's like I got you a birthday present from him. I got him to sign you a copy of the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I will cherish that DVD that is marked out to Gavwim. <laughs> <laughs> I even spell it for him and everything. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Do you, like the thing is, though, the whole thing about the room is this like awful. So is he like when he's screaming himself? You know, is he is he aware that it's awful? Is he what's he doing? The Q and A, he he acts like he's quite disdainful of people making fun of his masterpiece, as it were. But I don't think that's quite the case. I think he knows, right. and I think he actually enjoys the attention because yeah. this face, this film could have just slipped under the radar so yes. easily. Yeah. And I think he really does enjoy, it and he relishes it. And I think he's kind of playing a character now yeah. at these Q and As. I don't think he's that antagonistic to people taking the piss out of his making film. lemonade out of some pretty bad lemons. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, he's he's gone on from strength to strength. Yeah. After this, well, whether you call it that, he's doing well. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, it's a, it's you know it, critically, it's pretty. There's a bit of a consensus about Spider-Man Three, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out. A, a universal discussion. consensus. Well, that's it. The ratings on IMBD and Rotten Tomatoes aren't as bad as you think. What, what's it get on Rotten Tomatoes? It's about sixty odd percent, I think. I don't really trust IMDb to be honest as much as they used to. So Rotten Tomatoes, I'm going to. Yeah, those movie critics compared to your. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So is that joke? (laughs) (laughs) So let's just give a bit of a brief synopsis of Spider-Man Three. A strange black entity from another world bonds with Peter Parker and causes inner turmoil as he contends with new villains, temptations. And revenge. Just to be clear, it's Gav that does that voice. That's the one we get in. So. Yeah, yeah, that's what we want them to believe. So, acting as judge this week, we've got the impartial Alex. Yes. Now, I might just add here a reminder to everyone that the role of the judge is based on the arguments regardless of the judge's own opinion okay so remember that I will say nothing that you or the you know or whoever's defence and prosecution I will not say 
any arguments that you haven't said yourselves. Okay, right. Thank you. Promise. So, acting as the defence this week is me. Huh? Acting as prosecution and our good friend Captain Dave and the impartial character witness who's going to add tidbits of opinions here and there and throw their weight towards one side of the argument or the other is Joel. Uh, now, I have been trying to work on uh, a piece of music or a song for um, the film on trial part of the show. So yeah, I think we need a bit more well, music like, into it. Like the, the, the news bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so I'm just going to um, sing a song I've just been working on now. And I want you to give me your honest opinions at the end, okay? okay right? Will do. Okay, right. So, <clears throat> and, and hold your applause till the end, I might say as well. Okay. This is the film on trial. Don't listen to Dave, because he talks foul. Don't listen to Dave. Don't listen to Dave. Don't listen to Dave. Because he's wrong. Films on trial. Thanks. Objection, Your Honour. <laughs> Objection. <laughs> yeah, you put yourself pretty far behind on that. <laughs> no, no, pretty far in the race, and you've said nothing about that. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, if you picked up any subliminal messages there, I, I, that's, that's just you. Is that going to be a weekly thing? Am I just going to get slated in a song every week? <laughs> I do not know what you're talking about. So, right, as we're going to start, as judge, I'm going to ask people to you know say their points of view I'm going to ask prosecution to have two points and then defence you can have two points you're going to bring up and Joel as character witness you can come in on either side I think I'm going to start with the um, defence from Gavin so yeah could you please say your point to defend Spider-Man 3 okay so I would like to discuss plot that is going to be my first topic um, so I would just like to start with the opening credit montage which shows how all three of the Spider-Man movies are a single, continuous story. It sounds like it should be a given, but at the time, if you think about any other superhero franchises, um, the actions from one film don't necessarily affect a second film. Even when you're looking at it now, if you think about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example, events that happen in Iron Man 2 don't necessarily have any consequences or actions on Iron Man 3. So the main plot of the film focuses on Peter dealing with the fame of Spider-Man with the struggles of dual personality, which is a really big aspect of the film, this dual personality, and also learning the values of humility. Spider-Man was always the underdog in the previous two films, and Peter always had the worst look. He would start at the bottom and the audience would root for him to rise to the top. But in Spider-Man 3, this is the reverse. We start with everything going really well for Peter and Spider-Man, reveling in his newfound celebrity. But as the film progresses, his life begins to unravel. His best friend turns against him. He is so consumed by his fame that he lets his relationship with MJ falter. He faces pressures in work, uh, whilst he also faces pressures as Spider-Man. And then he encounters the symbiote, and he can't help but let it consume him. We then get an interesting take on the struggle of good versus evil. So it's always been thought as two characters fighting against each other, but this time it's within one character. Once Peter realises that the symbiote is destroying him, he remembers what was most important to him in the beginning and fights against it in the third act, once again becoming the well-meaning hero he's always been. Now, Spider-Man 3 acts as an end game to the series it leaves no loose ends at all rather than ending on a big note or a cliffhanger it decided to instead end focusing on the complexity of human emotion Peter forgives the Sandman and in turn finally stops feeling grief over his uncle's death there's the emotional conclusion of Peter and Harry's story arc and then there's the reconciliation between MJ and Peter as they embrace in the jazz club but Spider-Man 3 my argument is 
plot-wise has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it all ends with a satisfying conclusion to the trilogy. Okay, Dave. Uh, Gav said that basically Spider-Man 3 is the final conclusion to a, you know, that brings everything together out of all three films, It's got and it's got a, a seamless plot. How do you feel? Do you, do you agree with that? Not really, no. And I think the main reason I disagree with that is because this wasn't meant to be the end. This, it was not supposed to be it for Sam Raimi and Spider-Man. He was planning to do another, I think another three films. I think he was working on four, and he still had five or six as potential ones in the pipeline. There was so much more he wanted to do. This wasn't meant to be wrapped up, but he had such an awful time making this one. This film went through development hell. All because, well, no, I don't want to lay it all on, on one person's doorstep, but the producer, Avi Arad, did everyone a disservice with this one. He really put the reins around Sam Raimi, who I really rate as a director, I really rate as a screenwriter, but he got forced to shoehorn a lot of stuff into this film that he didn't want to do, namely Venom which the fans were all excited about, and he was told, oh, he's really popular with the young viewers, he's one of the most popular Spider-Man villains. And he is. Avi Arad was not wrong on that point. But Sam Raimi was forced to introduce a villain that he, he couldn't see any hum- humanity to, and therefore said could not write, and how right he was. He could not write the character of Venom. Now, the general plot that Gav talks about, you know, there's the opening credits, yeah, they are some nicely put-together opening credits. You know, it's, it's from one action. So, so in uh, Gav says, action from one film affects another. What about the retcon? In the opening credits, we have Uncle Ben's killer running away from Peter Parker, and at the end of this film, it emerges that Sandman was in some way involved in Uncle Ben's death. He he had the gun. He accidentally pulled the trigger when the who we thought was the killer ran into the back of him, forcing the gun to go off, bringing him into into. Uh, to take responsibility for Uncle Ben's death and it just doesn't make sense it just feels lazy in fact there could have been another way of introducing you know a, a forgiveness element to this film if that was what they wanted to do but it's just it feels very shoehorned in and they've completely rewritten that part of the first film to get this in there you know you talk about the dual personality of Peter the best friend turning against him only for a little while because he gets amnesia now if that's not a film running out of ideas and panicking I don't know what is amnesia you sound like a defence or a prosecution running out of ideas to film <laughs> it's like, it, was, it just feels lazy to give James Franco's character Harry Osborn amnesia so he forgets all about the Spider-Man thing. and then he comes around in the end they fight for a bit more once he remembers and then it's all sorted out in the end by his butler who says to him, ah, oh, that Spider-Man guy, no, he didn't kill you, Dad. Ah, he didn't do it. Sorry, did I not, should I have told you this at the end of film one? <laughs> oh, I could have saved you a lot of hassle. Saved you getting disfigured by that grenade. <laughs> well, obviously, <laughs> somebody here has never done buckling because it's a very difficult and strange... Order, order, order. I, I, I just don't see that that butler could have saved us all a lot of time. And again, I, nothing against the butler. But it just feels that that was a very lazy way of bringing that to a conclusion and switching Franco's uh, mindset on that one. It sounds like you have a lot against the butler, to be honest. And head traumas. Yeah, I, I'm nothing on head traumas and other people get amnesia. It's out there. I'm not denying it, and I'm not denying butlers exist either. But they are infallible. <laughs> they are fallible. They are fallible. I did not say infallible. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure Dave was saying he was pro-head trauma thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's for another podcast. Just before I bring John... Well, when we do scanners, we'll talk about it. <laughs> just before I bring John in, can I have clarification in terms? Well, you said retcon. Rep, rep, retcon. Bear in mind, Dave had to 
ask me what the word was before. <laughs> I should not have told him. <laughs> no, no, he really shouldn't. So, how do you say it? Ret. Retcon. So it's basically when one film tells you one thing, and then a film later, or a couple of films later in the series, it changes its mind and says, actually, you know what we said earlier? Well, that's not the case. It's actually this. Okay. So that's what Retcon is. So, Joel, uh, Gav's saying that, you know, this is a, this is a, a way of wrapping it all up. It's seamless. Uh, Dave's saying it wasn't meant to be wrapped up. There's, like, real serious problems in the plot that goes back and it doesn't quite work in the earlier films. Where do you... Where, where are you on this? Uh, well, I'm going to be completely impartial and only go from the points Gavin and Dave have said, but I'm going to back them up a little bit with facts, like, of my own. So, just from the starting point, like, that Gav made... He does make it sound like really poetic and like it's all one continuous story, and it kind of is. It does go from from one to two to three, as Gab says. Uh, but then also, as Dave says, um, they were working on a fourth film, and they got as far as like concept art, and I believe that even like uh, you know thought about casting the villains, which I believe was going to be the vulture. So Gab's point is kind of debunked a little bit there, I think, from from Dave. Um, also, just siding with Dave a little bit on the whole. Venom thing I think he is correct when he said it was you know kind of uh, Sam Raimi was kind of forced to, to put him in um, so I think that is completely correct as well and then yeah you know when I was watching it um, and as Dave says with, with Uncle Ben's killer when he was changed I watched it and I thought you know when you just have that moment of confusion like did that did, did that happen in, in the first film and it, it was just like that really I mean it was just very very Strange and kind of a really weird way to, to go about it. So, I think I've made some some interesting points, with, um, but but Dave, to be honest, kind of you know hammered them home. I'd like to just add here. <laughs> so I always sound irate in these podcasts. By the way, you sound such like an angry man, which I am because. <laughs> Right, okay, I admit it, there was a big retcon there, but I think it went for the better. When you look at the first film, it's just, who's the guy that killed Uncle Ben? Some guy, some some random the robber. Poor, the poor chap who got the, the, the part in the in the first film. <laughs> some, just some guy. Well, well, you know, I'm not discrediting the guy's performance, but I'm saying <laughs> in the grand scheme of the Spider-Man universe, he is just some guy. He's not like a, a Doc Ock. He's not like, you know, the Sandman. He's not, not somebody that he has a relationship with. But he is the Sandman. Now he is the Sandman. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Now he is the Sandman, and that brings that emotional connection to it. You have the whole thing of, oh, actually, it wasn't just a guy who robbed his car and shot him. It was actually an accident. It brings a lot of character depth to the Sandman. The fact that he didn't want to rob the car, but he needed to because he needed to get away. He was robbing it at gunpoint, but he didn't want to fire the gun. He was coming round to Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben was saying, "You don't need to do this." And he was, you know, he had empathy. He was saying, oh, "You are, you're right. You're right to be honest." And the only reason he shot is because his friend who just robbed the wrestling place ran into him and he accidentally shot him. You know, and you see in his face the anguish there that he didn't mean to do it. He's been racked with guilt all this time. The same time you've got Peter Parker who's been racked with guilt for letting the villain go in the first film, and he's also been brought with anger because he accidentally let him die. And when it comes to the Sandman killing Uncle Ben, you've got that sort of nice ending for the fact that he can finally forgive the Sandman. He can finally say. Uh, yeah, you, you killed Uncle Ben and I forgive you for it. I know that you didn't mean to do it. So for once, he's actually kind of forgiving somebody and he's showing that not all people deserve vengeance. 
Okay, so I feel like we've we've covered plot now. Uh, I think I'm going to move on. I'm going to ask Dave as prosecution. Would you like to? What you bring um, in there? Yeah, well, I, one of the points I wanted to bring up was structure, funnily enough. But um, the one I want to bring up now, I want to talk about casting characters. Hmm. Now there was some serious miscasting going on in this film. Topher Grace as Eddie Brock slash Venom I have to say that was a mistake I know there's a few people out there that think oh he didn't do too bad a job but with regret he doesn't have the physique for Eddie Brock he doesn't have the voice I'm, just, I'm am I the only one that found that when you're listening to Venom speak while he's um, got the symbiote around him the voice just doesn't match it just feels a bit weird it kind of snaps you out of it hearing Topher Grace's voice come out of the Venom character when he's CGI'd just doesn't feel like it works and some of the other cast as well James Franco who I really do write doesn't deliver a good performance here he goes from grimacing and like looking all surly into the mirror at the reflection of Willem Dafoe uh, to, to amnesia to having that dance while making an omelette and it's just like this, it looks like James Franco doesn't want to be there doesn't like his heart's in it and I think the same could be said for Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst as well and it's it just doesn't feel like it worked I'm afraid and as far as the cast goes I mean the uh, the characters you know I felt bad for Dylan Baker who played Kirk Connor because he was waiting in the wings to become the lizard and it never materialised I feel he would have made a much better villain as I believe Sam Raimi wanted him to be as well fact, uh, Dylan Baker I love him yeah. <clears throat> He's good. Oh, he, happiness as much. <laughs> oh, another podcast. Um, maybe not another podcast, to be honest. <laughs> he was waiting in the wings anyway to become the lizard. He never got that opportunity. And I feel bad for him. And it's just, I think what really, the point about these, this film is there's too many villains. You've got three villains on the go, and it's one too many. Two would have been enough, maybe pushing it. But the three of these do not add up to Willem Dafoe in the first one. They don't add up to Alfred Molina in the second, who did great work. And I think if you were to compare them, that's where the disappointment seeps in as far as this cast goes the villains are weak by comparison to the previous ones okay so the villains don't live up to the standard set by the first two films and actually having more villains seems to work against it Gav thoughts too many villains do not spoil the broth I will say that I'd just like to say that the character development throughout this entire series is actually incredible as it takes the characters through five years or so of growth by the time Spider-Man 3 commences, they've already graduated high school, uh, traversed college, and now they're actually approaching adulthood. I just want to talk about some of the characters that Dave spoke about then. I'll just talk about Spider-Man as the main character. He'll be finding balance in his love life and his secret private identities. Uh, but as opposed to the previous films, everything's going great, as I said. He's not arrogant or annoying. He's just proud. Um, but, but he's just having a lot of fun with it. But he starts losing sight of what's important to him and his relationship, uh, specifically with his relationship with MJ. As he revels in his own success, he takes this more cavalier approach to his relationship and fails to comfort her when she needs him the most. Um, when he becomes infected with the alien symbiote, he turns bad. I know that's a major gripe. I'm just going to point this out here. We'll be discussing this in more detail later on. But as Dr. Connors, Dylan Baker, explains to Peter, the symbiote amplifies characteristics of the host, so Parker's unassuming nerd becomes a more aggressive nerd. So... This is, this is evidence when the symbiote consumes him. He reacts on instinct, he has no foresight into his actions and he cannot see the repercussions because there are no immediate repercussions until the scene in the jazz scene, until the scene in the jazz club, I should say, sorry. Now, talking about MJ, similar to Peter, she's gone through a tremendous amount of growth. I know you were saying that Kirsten Dunst 
isn't really into it in this film in this film I think she delivers her best performance as Mary Jane she's got so much to do with this she struggles with jealousy and depression in the fact that MJ was always the popular one in school and Peter was always the geek but this time around she's struggling with the fact that Spider-Man is a hero he's a celebrity he's Peter because of it is more popular and confident and MJ is once she she actually becomes a Broadway star she experiences a humiliating failure in her professional life and when Peter fails to understand her torment her eye drifts towards Harry as she reevaluates whether she and Harry have changed in ways that Peter hasn't so talking about Harry once again the character development has been tremendous you know when we first meet this guy he rolls up in a Rolls Royce outside high school he was always as much of an outsider as Peter was and that's why their relationship worked so well but after his father's death he withdraws and he becomes vengeful to the point of hatred towards Spider-Man the last film ends with him discovering that Spider-Man is his best friend and this film begins with an all out war between the two men and after being disfigured during the final uh, during a fight with Spider-Man he retreats into reclusiveness only to re-emerge during the final battle as we see him realise the error of his ways and he ultimately sacrifices himself to save his friend from certain death. Now, you were saying about the villains being too many. Uh, I think this is a good thing. How many times have we seen a, a superhero film where it's good guy versus bad guy? We've seen it in First Batman. We've seen it in the second one. This one is something original. It's This is an actual... A, a, a task that Spider-Man might not be able to come out of you know he has two villains at 1.3 villains all battling him and when it comes to the final fight scene you're actually thinking to yourself oh actually Spider-Man might not make it out of this one when you're saying about Topher Grace being Venom I think he's a tremendous casting choice to be honest I mean, yeah, admittedly, he doesn't look like the brutish and bulging Eddie Brock from the comic books. But, what I was saying earlier, talking about dual personality, I think it's really great. He plays off the fact that he looks, sounds, and acts a lot like Tobey Maguire or Peter Parker. Both Peter and Harry struggle with an inner-outer good versus evil, and Peter has dual relationships with both Gwen and MJ. But Brock, his, character, his trajectory in the film is like kind of the opposite of what Peter experienced. So he experienced failure, he experiences humility, you know, and that is what drives him to anger. Raimi effectively uses Venom as a way of connecting all of the doubles and linking them to the themes expressed in the film about revenge and forgiveness. And we're talking about forgiveness, I just want to say about the Sandman, you said you don't like him as a character in the film. I think he's brilliant. It's that stereotypical character would you steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? A bit like Jean Valjean. And, you know, this is it. He is very so personable. His eventual transformation into the Sandman is not only visually stunning, but also emotional as he struggles to maintain a solid form as his daughter's pendant slips through his hand, symbolic of his struggle to maintain his humanity. Right, well, I mean, that's a very, you know, you have to put some very good points there. There's you sounded speechless, to be honest. More, I know, there's a lot more character depth to these than maybe meets the eye. Um, uh, so, Joel, I'm going to ask you to come in. So, Dave's sort of saying that, actually, characters aren't particularly well-rounded. Gav's just said that, no, they are. They're, they're very deep characters. Where, what did you feel watching it? I think it's very difficult to choose between the two. To be honest, Gav makes some really good arguments there, saying, uh, you know, about the character progression, and you can't see it, but there's almost like, uh, kind of like a just this thing that we see in a lot of films. You know, kind of as Gav said, the 
the relationship with, with Peter and Harry, um, how they fall out and then he comes to his aid. But it's kind of, you know, it sounds to me from what Gab's saying, it's it's like that, that formula that we see in a lot of films where, you know, somebody will fall out with a friend and then when he's in, you know, his most desperate hour, his friend will appear, you know, and, and, and everything's okay again. But Gav did make some really, really nice points there about all the other character progression, you know, with Venom, uh, with with Eddie Brock and all that type of stuff. But then I think Dave made some really good counter-arguments as well. I don't think Topher Grace sounds like he's, he's right for the role from, from what Dave has been saying. I know Gavin kind of backed that up when he basically said he isn't how he is portrayed in the comics. And to be fair, it is a comic book film, so technically they should be, you know, matching up in some way. So we've also then got, from what Dave was saying, James Franco, uh, Kirsten Dunst and Maguire, who all gave uncomfortable performances, and, and Gav kind of counteracted that and said uh, they all kind of fit into the roles perfectly, and I suppose it's, it's 50-50 on that one. It depends what way you look at it. What did you, what did you think watching it? Did you think they did feel, fit in comfortably? Or? Um, I think it was a case of too many cooks in in this in this thing I think they all deserved their own character arcs if you get me um, whereas I think they tried to squeeze too much in I don't think it was all bad but I just think they just it needed to be almost like a three part thing this film um, so overall I think they both made some good points um, as I say 50-50 with that one for well, well done we'll see we'll see where my judgement comes later um, before then yeah, before then, just while we're talking about characters, I thought this... <laughs> you can see laughing already. <laughs> I, I thought this might be the perfect place to do our quiz save. So once again, I've been trying to come up with a song. Just tell me if this one is uh, hits the right notes this time. Is this going to insult me again? No, 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 no. Don't be silly, don't be silly. Quiz Dave, da 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 da. Quiz Dave, da 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 da. He likes the quiz, he likes the jizz. Quiz Dave! Every wow. student, every student. Oh, wow! Wow! You, that, you wrote, you rhymed quiz with jizz. That, that's a keeper. That's, that's, yeah. That is uh, uh, Dylan will be spinning his bed. <laughs> so anyway, so this one is called Spider-Man Three. Uh, Spider-Man villain or wrestling gimmick. <laughs> Well, I was trying to play a bit of music there, but it just did not work at all. <laughs> anyway, right, so I'm going to name six uh, 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 characters here. You've got to tell me if they're a Spider-Man villain or a wrestling gimmick. Okay, sounds simple enough. Mm-hmm. First I'm one, gonna... the Gibbon. I'm going to say Spider-Man. Guys, uh, Spider-Man. Yes, wrestler. Ooh, Sparessler. <laughs> he's not a Sparessler, he's a Spider-Man villain. Just some guy who can jump around like an ape, basically. Like a gibbon. Yeah, like a gibbon, yeah, yeah. So essentially just, oh, what can we have this guy do? So now he can jump. Good, good stuff. Good. Number two. I feel like there's better monkeys to choose than gibbons. I feel like gibbons is an odd. Did you want the orangutan? Orangutan, <laughs> gorilla, maybe. Yeah, you've got to think about when they wrote it, to be honest. I, I bet it might be a case of another comic book where he had a villain called the orangutan. And they gone to Mandarin. There's a, there's a lot of more monkeys that I would yeah, say yeah. are above gibbon. But. Well, all right, so I'll go back to 1960 and tell Stanley this, all right. <laughs> so number two is the boogeyman. Um, for a fact. Yeah. Wait, excuse me, this is called Chris Dave. <laughs> Give your opinion to yourself. I'm going to say wrestler. 
Joel, apparently you're so confident. Yeah, I remember watching WWE or whatever, oh, and he's eating like worms and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Alex, well, do we? Even I'm going to go wrestler then. <laughs> yeah, he is a wrestler. He had loads of potential, and uh, he was supposed to be this vision from children's nightmares. But he just, as Joel said, ended up eating a load of worms each night. <laughs> Oddly enough, didn't do a good career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and his medical bills on st- st- stomach saved you through the roof. Uh, so number three, the Yeti. I want to say Spider-Man. Okay, Joel. Spider-Man. Oh, I was going for wrestling. I'm going to stick with wrestling. He is a wrestler, well oh, yeah, yeah. So this guy was just big and hairy. So that was it. Colin the Yeti. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, number four, Big Wheel. I want to say Spider Man. I go Spider Man. I can't. I can't see what the gimmick is in either. But I'm going to go Spider Man as well. Yeah, it is Spider-Man. Jackson Wheel. (laughs) (laughs) What a coincidence. Is a businessman who visits the mechanical genius and underworld supplier the Tinkerer and asks him to create a large metal wheel that can climb up buildings and shit. (laughs) That is some those are the words in the comic book. I want (laughs) climb up buildings and shit. It's great and barrel. Okay, uh, number five, kangaroo. I wanna say wrestler. I'll go Spider-Man. Well, I'm going to go Wrestler as well. Oh, it's Spider-Man. So this guy was born in Australia. And as a young man, he studied kangaroos with a passion. He lived, ate, and traveled with them over over a period of time, developing a leaping ability that rivaled them. So that's, that's what happens when you study animals. You, yeah. do, you do pick up there. Yeah. So did, did did him and the gibbon ever? Oh, uh, no, no, that's spoilers. To be honest, we're going into too much detail there. But just finishing off number six, Mantor. 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 I think I've heard of it before. I'm going to go wrestler. I'm pretty sure he's a wrestler. It's, I think he's a wrestler, but I think it's, 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 yeah. it's hilarious. He is a wrestler. <laughs> he is half man, half minotaur. <laughs> so he's a quarter he's minotaur, a three quarters man. Yeah, quarterable, three quarters. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so that was another uh, episode of Quiz Dave. But I think it links us quite nicely onto Alex's Trivia of the Week. Oh, oh yeah. No, my Trivia of the Week. So my Trivia of the Week is in Spider-Man 3. Um, Thomas Hayden Church who played the Sandman if I'm correct uh, at one point I think when him and Spider-Man meet in the sewers for the first time they have a fight sort of uh, Tobey Maguire ducks out of the way as the Sandman like punches a bit of concrete out of the way as they were filming it um, the people were meant to remove the brick out of the wall and put in a foam brick in the way but they didn't so when they shouted uh, action he just turned around and punched a solid wall as hard as he could and broke, I think, three knuckles. Ouch. I think. Yeah. Oh. Not Ouch. happy, I would imagine, after that. But yeah. So we watched that scene again. Yeah. He kept on the performance because he knew Spider Man. Don't, use, so don't use this. <laughs> <laughs> don't use my trivia. Right. Uh, so coming back to the main part of the uh, podcast. Coming back to Gav now as defence. What's your second point, Gav, to defend it? My second point to defend this, and it's going to be a shocker, is. Dun, dun, dun. The dancing. Yeah, that's right. I thought the it, dancing. Yeah, I thought I'd get it in there before Dave brings it up. Okay. The dancing. Right. Now, this one is a massive bone contention with all comic book fans, to be honest. But I just want to clarify this once and for all. Peter Parker is a nerd 
smart, quiet, and awkward. Now, as I mentioned previously, Dr. Connors reveals that the symbiote amplifies characteristics of the host. So when Peter adopts this bad boy persona, it's almost what he perceives to be bad. And even when he is being bad, he's still a nerd. If this scene is awkward, if any of the dancing is awkward, it's because it is meant to be awkward. Peter Parker is not dark, so when he is wearing the symbiote, he isn't going to do anything heinous. Peter's strut is him trying to be cool. He's still an awkward nerd, but he is trying to come off as cool. Now, this is this is a, this is a trait that's used by Raimi a hell of a lot of, of, in his previous films, and it's I think it's just odd because of the way it was brought up. But similarly to Army of Darkness, Raimi takes seemingly dark moments and puts a comedic spin on them. The scenes where Peter Parker is dark are not supposed to be serious, they're supposed to be funny, and they are funny. The thing is, is that at the same time, no one was creating this big dark universe with the, the, the Dark Knight, Batman. But in this one, Raimi's doing his whole idea on the take, and you know, he's, he's taking the idea of having a hero who questions his motives and embrace the darker side, but putting a completely different spin on it. Even the much maligned dance numbers are funny at the core. They are Raimi being Raimi. They do, however, lead to a really important part of the film in which Peter backhands MJ. Um, you have this really over-the-top, ridiculous dance number, followed by this jarring image of our hero striking MJ. It shows just how much the symbiote has overwhelmed Peter. And although it might have been all fun games before when he was having a bit of a dance and doing the finger guns, this time it's no laughing matter. The scene ends with the perfectly captured sequence where MJ asks, Who are you? And Peter replies, I don't know. It finally lets Peter realise that the immediate consequences of his actions and gives him the shot in the arm that he needed to get rid of the symbiote. Now, if he didn't have those over-the-top dance numbers beforehand... That scene would have just been out of the blue and it would have been jarring and nowhere near as powerful as it was. Dave, uh, do you agree that the dancing scenes, the, the emotional interplay between MJ and Peter Parker are incredibly powerful emotional scenes? What? Batman? You're supposed to be the judge! I am being impossible. Stop laughing! You can't, you, if you hadn't said it, no one would know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Say I've got to admit, I, th- I thought the dancing would have been like shooting fish in a barrel on this one because it was such a bone of contention. I've got... That's a very good argument you've made up there, Gab. Thank you very much. That is very good. But but it's a shame the film doesn't give us that. We have to wait for you to present that argument to us. I, I didn't get it from the film. I'm sorry, I missed it. I don't think we get why he's dancing. And is there really the need for him to dance that much? I don't think it's that funny. It's funny for a second. <laughs> it's funny for a second, but he has like three dance... <laughs> three moments of dance in the whole film I think that one would have done it I don't think it needs to be that many mm. it's it, the, it, the fun goes out of that pretty swiftly I think and yeah, I'll, I've got to admit to you my heart went out of this argument a little bit because that was a brilliant argument you've made in defense of that dancing <laughs> but no it just doesn't work and you, although your explanation is good the film does not proffer that explanation we've had to look out of context and really think about it and for a film like this you don't want to overthink it if Sam Raimi can't make it clear to us that's why he's behaving in this way, he should have thought thought more about the script writing for this one. I think the thing is, is that, you know, it's supposed to be a funny scene. It's supposed to be funny. And the thing is, is that everybody that's watching it, all the fans, are so kind of fixated on the character and they've, they've you know, learned... They've known him for two films now. That seeing this thing is really out of the blue. But the fact is, if you just watch it as a film, watch it as a piece of cinema on its own, 
you will see that it is actually quite funny. If, if you weren't a Spider-Man fan and you watched that, you would think that that was funny. So it's just about taking that step away from the film and looking at it for what it was, a piece of like comedic, uh, you know, comedic set piece in the film. I'm not a huge Spider-Man fan. I wasn't amused. <laughs> uh, Joel, you are a massive Spider-Man fan. Were you amused? Can I, does anyone mind if I read a tiny little piece from a website? Kind of backs up Gav's argument a little bit. Does it? Or does it shit all over it? I'm going to laugh. Thanks, George. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, basically, it's a, I'm just going to read it word for word. It says, Deep inside Peter, there will always be a door. And when the alien symbiote takes him over, that's what begins the service. It's a wonderful character concept. When Peter Parker gets cocky, he doesn't get violent or gritty. He turns into a raging dweeb's version of a cool guy. Growing up all owner, Peter's version of cool includes John Travolta's 70s dance moves and a vague idea of beatnik jazz action. To Peter, always an outcast and always unsure of himself, these archetypes represent the ultimate self-confidence. Um, so I thought that kind of backed up Gav's, Gav's argument a little bit because I've got to say when watching it that does not come to mind which is why you know I think Dave's argument is equal uh, if not more because that 